recently deceased, I would love to hang out with Princess Margaret. Yeah, but she was if mild. I can't have that, I wouldn't mind having dinner with Princess Anne. Well, if we can really go there, it would have to be Henry VIII's bowel habits because <laughs> that man, we know a lot about his visits to the toilet. John Major was furious because the then Prince Charles is supposed to have seen John Major in the 90s uh, to talk about his mother's abdication. And both former prime ministers said last autumn, you know, this is absolute rubbish. It never happened. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of A Right Royal Podcast with me, Andrea. And me, Emmy. Well, on this week's episode, we're going all glitz and glamour as we look at how the roles have been translated into television and film and in the most famous of adaptations, The Crown. Now, this is right up your street, Emmy. Yes, I'm actually Hello's digital TV and film editor. Not that you would know from listening to this with the royal experts, you and Emily. So I'm very excited to be able to know a little more information and knowledge than I usually do. (laughs) Well, we've got some amazing people who can tell us all the behind the scenes gossip. We'll be talking to Matthew Lopez, the director of Amazon Prime Video's new smash hit, Red, White and Royal Blue, and what it's like to create a film based on royalty. We'll also hear from professional writer and photographer Ian Lloyd, who's written and photographed pretty much every member of the royal family. Advanced warning, though, the crown is not exactly at the top of his watch list, and we'll be hearing all about why. Ooh, and we'll be speaking to Tracy Borman, historian and author, who will be diving into our love of royal historical shows and films. From the show The Tudors to Netflix's Queen Charlotte. But first, we're joined by leading lady of our hearts, Hello's <laughs> Royal Editor, Emily Nash. What, what do you want? <laughs> <laughs> I want to know what your favourite royal TV show or movie adaptation is, Emily. <gasps> That's a really good question. If I'm totally honest, I don't find watching royals depicted on screen that relaxing. Oh, God, <laughs> so probably the more historical stuff. I really enjoyed the first few seasons of The Crown. I thought that was absolutely brilliantly done. And yeah, I guess the nearer it gets to our time, the more awkward I find it perhaps. Yeah. But I do enjoy a good historical drama as well. And Let's face it, this country has got some fantastic stories to tell. Very true. You say it's not relaxing, but have you watched the Hallmark, Harry, Meghan, William, Kate-related films? Do you know what? I haven't, Andrea. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it can go on my very long to-do list. Yeah, I I tend to sort of go for non-royal TV in my spare time. I can imagine, I can imagine. Emily, do you ever worry that you might pop up on the crown as a character... I sincerely hope not. (laughs) (laughs) Well, who would play you in that scenario? Oh, yes. Oh, my goodness. I don't know. That's a very good question. Some very kind friends of mine have likened me to Sally Field, the actress, but in the scenes where she was playing... Forrest Gump's mother. Slightly, wow. You know, I was going to say Jenna Coleman. You yes. Yeah. Well, you can come again. <laughs> that, that I've been very likened kind. to uh, Margot Robbie in the past, actually. Oh, right. No, she's trying to one <laughs> up me now. <laughs> <laughs> if you could direct a royal related film, what subject from the past that you've covered would you choose? That I've covered? Well, that has happened whilst you were alive. So since you've been born. I'm very interested in, I mean, what I'd love to know more about, and we'll probably never find out in our lifetimes, is some of the conversations that Queen Elizabeth had with people in government, with ambassadors. She 
really had at her fingertips the most sensational intelligence about things that were going on all over the world. And I would love some sort of spy thriller that kind of touched on oh. on the Queen as well. But um, again, I think it would have to be very firmly rooted in fiction yeah. for it to happen. I would love if they released her private diaries and we got an idea of what she was behind the scenes. Like just as a grandmother, great-grandmother, I would love to see that side of her in a film where we could go behind the scenes at Christmas Day and just the light-hearted moments. I- I think that's Queen Diaries. Why, yes. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what the crown did so well, in fact, and has done so well, is taking us into those little private moments. Obviously they're imagined. Yeah. But it gives you an insight or what we think is an insight into their personal lives. And that is really at the heart of royalty for people on the outside, isn't it? It's that mystique. It's that not ever quite knowing the person, not ever having yeah. the full picture. That makes them so fascinating. A lot of controversy about The Crown, though, especially as it goes further into the 21st century and about whether Netflix should have a disclaimer being like, this is fiction. What do you think? I think they should. And I think it's very difficult because members of the royal family haven't chosen to be in that position. They're not elected. They haven't put themselves forward for this. And they're never going to come out and complain about these things because that would just draw more attention to it. It must be incredibly hard to see yourself represented not you know in the wider media as well in a way that you don't think is accurate or fair Mm. so I think we always need to remember that it's helpful when you know you pick someone like Dominic West to play King Charles although (gasps) what are you saying he's a great actor what are you trying to say well for me he's he's always gonna be Jimmy McNulty from The Wire (laughs) so (laughs) I can keep a bit of distance you know there when I'm watching him Dominic's sort of a bit of a dish well, he's a great actor. Yeah, well. Wow. <laughs> now, we couldn't talk about this subject without obviously mentioning the Duchess of Sussex, who is actually an actress. There we go. Will the reverse. We, yes. Will we see her back on our screens again one day? I'm sure With we will in, in some form. I can't imagine she's never going to give another interview or appear on stage somewhere and be filmed. So, yeah, I absolutely expect we'll see her again in future, but I don't think we'll ever see her acting. But she has said... That she has done, we will respect her decision. But there is plenty of royalty on screen and stage and such that we can discuss for the rest of the episode. And we've got some great guests today, Emmy. Oh, well, we are about to be joined by someone I've been very, very excited to meet. We're chatting to Matthew Lopez, who is the director of Red, White and Royal Blue, which I personally am a huge fan of, big fan of the book. The film came out on Amazon Prime Video in August this year, and I just can't wait to get a bit of an insight into it. Matthew, congratulations on your directorial debut. What an incredible success. The number one film worldwide on Amazon Prime Video, so I hear. Yes, thank you so much. It's been quite a ride the last three weeks. We've been inundated with love and that feels great. Amazing. And for those of our listeners who haven't been acquainted with Red, White and Royal Blue just yet, can you give us a little bit of an overview of the plot, what it's all about? Yeah, certainly. Red, White and Royal Blue is based on the novel by Casey McQuiston, and it is about the son of the U.S. president whose mortal enemy is the grandson of the King of England. They uh, get into an altercation at a royal wedding in which they topple over a 75,000 pound costing cake. 
causing an international incident, which they have to then do a lot of damage control on and pretend that they're actually friends. And then they actually do become friends and then they fall in love and then their love changes the world. And that is Red, White and Royal Blue in a nutshell. That's the elevator pitch. You need to figure out if you feel forever about him. Do you love him? What difference would it make if I did? I want someone to love. Prince Henry belongs to Britain. I need. We can figure out a way to love each other on our own terms. It's like there's a rope attached to my chest and it keeps pulling me towards you. Hopefully we'll get through tonight without any more scandals. (laughs) The night is young, Ma. I love it. I love it. And what got you involved in it in the first place? What made you want to direct this one? I read the novel in early 2020, just before the pandemic, and I really loved it. I just, like many who have read it before me and since, I fell madly in love with those two characters. Alex and Henry, the two leads, are just such fantastic roles. And I'm Puerto Rican, biracial, grew up in Florida. I had never read a book with a character who was biracial, Latin, queer, from the South, like Alex's. So I had a lot of, even though my mother isn't president, <laughs> I had a lot of connection to the character. I felt really seen by him and by Casey for writing this character. And so I really wanted to make the movie. I, it was There was absolutely none of this sort of, oh, do you want to do it? Oh, I don't know, playing hard to get or, or like actually <laughs> genuinely trying to determine whether or not I wanted to do this. This was me reading the book and then stalking the producers mercilessly until they <laughs> let me make this movie. <laughs> I love that you're a fan. I'm a huge fan of the book as well, actually. I think maybe we need to get like a pub quiz together, you know. Book group. I think we might win it. Absolutely. <laughs> Obviously, you know, we're a royal podcast, so let's talk a bit about the royals in the movie. Obviously, this is a fictional royal family, but I think... You have done such a good job of making it seem very authentic. You know, obviously we work at Hello and just like the royal commentators in it and everything, it was just like so brilliant. How important was it for you to sort of suspend the audience disbelief and believe in this particular British royal family? Yeah, there were two things that we wanted to do simultaneously, which felt sort of diametrically opposed. But I knew that if we could get them in a wonderful tension, it would be really great for the movie, which is to at all times remind the audience that this is made up, that this is so hardcore fiction, (laughs) but root that hardcore fiction in a believable facsimile of the world that we presently live in. And so when it came to the royals, and certainly when it came to the White House and, and protocols in both places, we really wanted the movie to both feel fantastical and realistic simultaneously. And so I worked with a, a royal etiquette advisor, because as an American living in England, I haven't yet, you know, sort of gleaned all of the do's and the don'ts. And so I had, you know, someone I, someone there on set to teach everyone how to bow, how to curtsy, how to approach, how to walk away from a royal. There's a scene that we shot that isn't in the film in which Thomas Flynn, who plays Prince Philip, who is the uh, sort of second in line for the throne, who's Henry's older brother, he's drinking a cup of tea. And Flynn is just this wonderful... Uh, working class lad from the north and he was never you know taught the proper way to drink a cup of tea we really sort of went into a deep dive of how to make it feel real and how to make it feel believable 
I mean, I'm sure you've probably been asked this already about real life inspiration behind Prince Henry's character. Because, I mean, would you say that it's sort of some parts Prince Harry, some parts Prince William? I think in terms of allowing people to understand the fictional world and to enter it, I think that is probably a good shorthand for it. Mm. I think the part that is Prince William is that sort of the idea that that Henry's beloved father has died when he was younger, the idea that he was sort of Prince of England's hearts. And then, you know, the rebellious streak in, in Henry, the eventual rebellious streak in Henry, obviously people will undoubtedly sort of, I'm sure, find connection to, to Prince Harry. But there was no overt attempt on our parts to really sort of make those connections. I thought it was inevitable that people would, and I thought it would be foolish to bend over backwards to sort of avoid it at all costs. But we also didn't want to sort of lean into it. Like, for example, in the book, Casey uses the actual Windsor family name. There's a slight alteration in the book. It's Mount Christian Windsor. And when we were putting the movie together, I thought that was just a little too close to, for comfort for me. And it didn't sort of suit the narrative of these aren't the Windsors. If they're called the Windsors, it's hard to convince an audience of that. So I went back into older sort of aristocratic English names and older ruling families. And so I came up with a Hanover Stewart. So I really like, again, I wanted to keep it in a reality. I wanted to keep it with names that were sort of familiar to people who understand royal history and the history of the aristocracy in England. But I also wanted to make it our own. So there was a lot of that going on. There was a lot of like turning reality into fiction and making sure that fiction felt real. Interesting. I mean, I was wondering what your thoughts were as well. I definitely saw when it was released a couple of headlines comparing Alex and Henry to like Harry and Meghan. I mean, did you want to sort of lean away from that? Or was it kind of like, yeah, I can sort of see the similarities there? Like I said, I think it would be a waste of time to bend over backwards to try and distract the audience completely from that. They're going to make that connection regardless. And sure. You know, and, and, and so I think it's, it's a fool's errand to try and avoid that entirely. We didn't want to lean into it because I thought really... It would be a distraction. I think that if people watch the movie and are thinking of them, then they're not thinking of Alex and Henry. Mm. I think my suspicion, my suspicion, my hope and my suspicion is that people watch the movie and they take Alex and Henry on face value as their own people. And then after the movie, they think about the connection that they might potentially have with Harry and Meghan. It's unintentional, but I also acknowledge that in, to some degree it's unavoidable. I do think you've really captured the spirit of like, I can only guess, not being royal myself, but the maybe the isolation of being that surrounded by attention. The pressure. Or the, yeah, yeah, the pressure. Yeah, it to be perfect all the time. And mm. Yeah, the thing that they do have in common is that Henry challenges the orthodoxy, right? Henry in the film says to his family, I'm not going to be the person that you want me to be. Uh, But, you know, honestly, that idea of the rebellious prince is as old as Shakespeare. You know, Henry IV, that's, that's, uh, you know, how the rebellious prince who's who's hanging out with Falstaff and his mates. There is something 
much older than simply Prince Harry going on there in, in English royal history. And so I think in, you could say that the most recent example of that is, is Prince Harry, but he's hardly alone in that rebellious prince streak. Very true. I have a question. I'm very curious as to how much of a fan or not you were before of the royals and how has that changed? You know, it's funny. I, I have, like many Americans, a fascination with the British royals to a degree that is probably much different than you Brits do. Uh, we're all Americans are just Americans are just fascinated. I think, you know, I was asked about this earlier and I, I wondered, and I don't know if I'm right, but you know, in America, aristocracy and nobility and kings and queens are quite literally outlawed. Like it is against the law. It is it is written into our constitution that we will not have a nobility. So you're always fascinated by that which is against the law, you know, it's why we love gangster movies too. So I think that to some degree, I wonder if because we cannot have it ourselves and we quite literally are disallowed from having it, I think it's what makes it fascinating to us. So to that degree, yes, I was much like any American and I had a fascination with the royals. I've watched every single episode of The Crown, of course, uh, and I do find it really juicy as, but here's the difference, I think, for an American observing it, it is a story. It is mm. uh, a juicy story that we're told. And it isn't just the Windsors. It is, you know, it's the Plantagenets, it's the Stuarts, it's all of it. For you, it's, it's your history. So for Americans, it isn't our history. It's just a story that we've been told. And it's a story we like. And I think that is the main difference. We find it very juicy too, I think. Yeah. Yeah. The Tudors, you and know, it's, love it's, that. It's still sufficiently different to all our lives. Yeah. <laughs> of interest, yeah. Do you have a favourite, Matthew, of the royal family? Living, I am a big, big fan of, of Princess Anne. Oh, yes. Wow. Oh, we can agree. You can agree with that. I think Princess Anne is pretty cool. I think she's just like... If there's any royal I would love to meet, living royal I'd love to, obviously, if there were recently deceased, I would love to hang out with Princess Margaret. Yeah, but she was if wild. I can't have that, I would love, I would, I wouldn't mind having dinner with Princess Anne. If she accepts, I feel like she'll just tell you to like go, go <laughs> off. And, uh... She can come out to Hackney anytime she wants for dinner. Uh, historically, ah, wow. That, there's a lot to choose from. I mean, then I sort of go back to, I mean, does Eleanor of Aquitaine count? Oh, oh that's a very that's, good one. That's proper throwback. The sequel question, because, I mean, is it going to be Alex takes his citizenship test? <laughs> What's the, uh, <laughs> what are we thinking? I don't think a sequel is a bad idea, but until we get a fair deal from the studios, there's no talk of a sequel. So anybody who loves Red, White, and Royal Blue and wants a sequel, you know, just know that, you know, we can't do anything until the studios get their act together and actually negotiate a deal with us. So that's what we need to have happen first. But I've said all along that it, once we get to a place where we're actually able to talk about a sequel, I don't think anyone ultimately wants a sequel for a sequel's sake. There has to be a really good reason to continue the story. I mean, I'd watch for the... Would you watch it no matter what, even if it was just Alex? And yes! yes. I, I'd watch for the citizenship test yeah. alone. Right. Well, that yeah. goes my yeah. theory. <laughs> a royal adoption as well, I was saying before. Alex learning how to drive in the UK. Alex learning how to drive alongside of the road. 
Yeah, absolutely. You could, this could be semi-autobiographical. Yeah. Yes, maybe. Maybe. So. What would you want to see Henry learning how to do American style? Oh, American, oh. American Prince Henry. Oh, that's Interesting. a good question. Yeah. 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 Let me throw it back to you. How do you want me to Americanize Henry? He's very good at polo, isn't he? It's like maybe he needs to, you know, a Prince Henry takes on like American football or something. Like Friday yeah. Night no, Live. Or he baseball. Needs to let or baseball, yeah. What about Prince Henry playing baseball? That's yeah, a good idea. Yeah, I can idea. see that. I can see that. Maybe the sequel will be a baseball movie. Wouldn't that just shock <laughs> I feel like you'd, uh, you'd lose the royal audience on that one like oh god baseball I, do, I agree with you I agree with you <laughs> a little birdie did uh, tell me to ask you about your potential titles though apparently you've got some great ones in the works this was my first film so I have nothing to compare it to however those for whom it wasn't their first film continually throughout the process told me what a fun happy joyful set it was to be on and that makes me happy to know and to report and everyone was like planning the sequels and I was like we're on day 20 of the shoot everybody let's just sort of get to the end shall we (laughs) but Kat most especially who did Taylor's hair and makeup she proposed to me Red White and Royal Wedding as a second movie yeah and then she wanted she wanted it to be a trilogy and she wanted Red, White, and Royal Baby as the third movie. Absolutely. That was basically the onset joke around day 20 <laughs> that we were going to make a trilogy and those were the two titles for the sequel. I feel like that would sort of be following the trajectory of A Christmas Prince, which as we know is a very, very enjoyable Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> because the title Return of the King has already been taken, well... I guess we'll go with Cat's idea. <laughs> I wanted to touch on a little bit about Alex and Henry's relationship and the fact that Henry has feels like as a member of the royal family, he wants to remain, I guess, like closeted. Prince William talked about his children potentially, you know, if they came out as gay in an interview with Attitude where he said he would have no problem with it, obviously, but he'd be worried about the response to it. I mean, obviously, you can only speculate, we can only speculate, but do you think the reaction was sort of an idealised one for the film? Or do you think this is something that we'll be very accepting of if it ever happened with the real royal family? It's hard for me to answer that question as an outsider. I don't have enough sort of lifelong institutional knowledge. Mm. Uh, What I will say is that this is and always has been a fairy tale. But fairy tales are historically are basically our fondest hopes and dreams and wishes manifest, right? They're about wish fulfillment. And so I think that in the idea of a future in which there is a very sort of prominent royal who is out, we're almost a quarter of the way through the 21st century already. And I just, I, I have to hope that it would be a joyful response and then it would probably become the most mundane and boring thing ever, you know? I love the idea of it just being like, yeah, and? Completely normal. Yeah, just, <laughs> yeah, and what? I was wondering as well, just, uh, I mean, I feel like we have to wrap up quite soon. I was a bit disappointed that we didn't have any cameos from actual royal family members in the movie. <laughs> Matthew, did you, did you consider, did you consider are, are, asking? Are you, are, you, are you surprised? Are you surprised with that? No, I Megan's reckon Fergie would have been well up for oh, it. Oh yeah, Fergie would have said yes. <laughs> Fergie's up for everything, isn't she? She's great. I will be honest with you, it never occurred It never occurred to me to ask. Do you know who I actually, I, I wanted to ask, and then it just never worked out. I wanted to ask Hillary Clinton to make an appearance in the <gasps> Oh, wow. But I ended up chickening out on that. I, it, look, it never occurred to me. Listen, if in the future, if there is a sequel, I'm not saying there will be, 
and I'm certainly not saying there will be any time while there's a strike going on. I need a list from you of who you think is gettable. And then they have <laughs> yes. to actually make an impact. It can't be, I don't want, I don't want like the 17th Viscount of Uxbridge. <laughs> no, no, no. Like, I, like, I need like a couple of heartbeats away kind of royal. Oh, Mike Tyndall. You know what, Mike Emmy's Kinsara. motto is if you don't ask, you don't get. Yeah, so. that's very true, very true. You know who else will be very available, Matthew? Uh, us three for when, uh, for, for when the characters do their podcast interview. That is something I can definitely get them out. Yes. Uh, <laughs> let me tell you, I, I, I can't make a commitment to a sequel, but I can commit to putting the three of you in it. <laughs> love, yeah. love that. So that is done. Great. Done. done. Great. So done. we're going to circle back for yeah. Red, White and Royal <laughs> Wedding. Uh, Fairy tales right there. Love that. Uh, we have... Um, actually, Emily, you've been to so many royal weddings as a royal correspondent. Like, you are perfect for the sequel. Oh, yeah, could be doing She has been, you've been at Westminster Abbey. You know, I've you've been, been at Windsor. You've I've been, been to funerals. I've been to you've weddings. Been to now funerals. we're just pitching <laughs> ourselves to Matthew, basically. <laughs> now, well, no, no, it's fine. We actually did try to get a few, and they're out, they're, their papers or their networks said no. Uh, we tried to get a few. I won't say who. But it rhymes with he he he. Um, <laughs> they said no. Um. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious right I think we have to wrap up don't we, we? Do. Uh, Maggie thank you so much for your time it's been it's an absolute been joy <laughs> really fun thank, thank you. you and congrats again on the movie I great to speak to you all we'll see you at the studio where yeah, whenever yeah. that is <laughs> see you then. whenever that is yes <laughs> oh my god guys are we going to appear in our first Hollywood movie it's everything I ever dreamed of from like, that interview. We've been cast, right? That could not have gone better. Like, not only was he wonderful, but we are also bona fide actors from now on. And I think we've got that recorded, so we could in future say this is our audition tape. Absolutely. Well, he has promised us. He's promised us the sequel, the Red, White and Royal Wedding sequel. Does he know what he's letting himself in for? Nope. Uh, I digress. <laughs> we need to get onto the studios. They need to solve this ASAP. Right, no more Hollywood talk because we're on to our next guest, Ian Lloyd, a writer and photographer with nearly two decades specialising in royals. Welcome to our podcast, Ian. Just to kick things off, can you tell us a little bit about your work? Well, sure, yeah. I mean, I was a royal photographer, actually, for about 20 years in the 80s and 90s and photographed Diana and the Queen and went on state visits, like the Queen's historic visit to Russia. And then I moved into writing. I did an awful lot uh, with Hello, actually, in the late 90s and gradually moved into writing, writing about royal families. So I've done uh, quite a few books. The last three, the one this year was uh, called The Throne, which is about the history of coronations. And I also did two biographies, one called The Duke, about the Duke of Edinburgh, and one called The Queen, which is obviously about the late Queen Elizabeth. So I think I, I, think I know a fair amount about them. But... Who was your favourite out of the two, Prince Philip and the Queen? Definitely the Queen. Um, <laughs> when she was there, there was just like a, you get like a tingle down the spine. She was very legendary, fascinating. She was just awe-inspiring being next to her. I mean, even her sister, I think I found a quote somewhere we can find it. She said, I get, Princess Margaret said, I get enormously impressed when she walked into a room. I mean, that, that was her own sister. You know, there's something, you know. Magical. Well, you knew it was special. <laughs> yes. I've never heard that quote before. That's lovely. It is amazing. I don't think my siblings have ever said that about me. No, God, no. Yeah. <laughs> Not about mine, I mean. <laughs> so with an absolute wealth of knowledge on these royal figures, that leads us neatly to their depictions in The Crown. First things first, Ian, what do you think of The Crown? Give us your opinions. Well, I was thinking before coming on here, I thought, well, 20% of me 
thinks it's absolutely wonderful, but 80% thinks it's absolute. well, I won't say it, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's infuriating because the good bit is the spectacle. I mean, I watched one because uh, I've been revising it, knowing I was coming on here, and partly because I haven't even watched half of it. It just infuriates me so much. But I watched the <laughs> one by Abba Van. Um, Abba Van, this great disaster in the 1960s. Well, it was filmed like Hollywood spectacle. I mean, it was totally gripping. And I think that's what's fascinating about it. And the attention to detail. I'll tell you what, in the very first episode, uh, it's the first episode, it's about the Princess Elizabeth marrying Philip. And uh, I covered that in various books and in real life. Prince Philip's aunt, who was Lady Mountbatten, she turned up wearing this enormous hat, which was just made up of two ostrich feathers. I mean, really enormous, right down here, one down there, two ostrich feathers. And I was watching The Crown, and on row three of the congregation in the wedding, there's this woman with this enormous hat. And I thought, blimey, that's Lady Mountbatten's. Oh. I would know that, nobody else would. But, you know, that attention to detail. Yeah. And recently I went to put them palace and they had all the queen in the, in the crown not the real one but they had all her coronation robes uh, from the series on display at Blenheim. and i mean it's just the attention to detail is just so fantastic and i think that's what makes it so gripping it's sort of the other 80 percent why i can't stand it is the actors which i'm going to allude to i'll just say it quickly and the historical inaccuracies and also the effect it could possibly have on the family you know, the royal family. And I think those three reasons are very, very important. What was the top inaccuracy that really made you lose it? <laughs> I think it was, and this goes into the, the last bit I mentioned about upsetting the family. It was, I think, series two, and it was about Prince Charles starting at Gordonston, uh, which was Prince Philip's alma mater. I mean, his, his old school. In this episode, there's a real life fact alluded to, is that Prince Philip's sister, Cecile, favourite sister, was killed in a plane crash in 1937. She was coming to a wedding in London with her husband, two children, mother-in-law, various people, about 10 people on this plane. And she was eight months pregnant. We're not quite sure what happened, whether she went into labour, but there was a baby found in the wreckage. But the plane hit a fog bank, careered all over the place, and then crashed into a, a factory chimney. And uh, all people on board were killed. And Prince Philip was 16. He had not seen his mother and father for a long while. Uh, so his sisters acted as, uh, you know, sort of surrogate parent, really. And he went to the funeral. It was, it was like, you know, Prince Harry with Diana uh, walking behind the coffin and so on. And he was traumatised. Now, in the crown, the reason that she came to the wedding was because he wouldn't go to Germany in the crown. Totally fictitious. She said, they said, will you come to see me? And then I don't have to go to London. Prince Philip's naughty at school. He gets banned from leaving school, so he can't go. So she has to fly over to see the family. See? And um, it gets killed. And at the funeral in the crown, his father says, you know, how dare you show your face here to Prince Philip when you've caused the death of my favourite daughter? You know, well, at the time, Prince Philip was alive. This was series two, I don't know when, three, four years ago, I don't know. In Prince Philip, he wouldn't have watched it, I'm, I'm sure, but he would have known about it. Absolutely right. It's a very, very hurtful suggestion. And, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about whether or not these episodes should come with a, a, a disclaimer, with a warning. I'm, I'm guessing that 80% of you would say a resounding yes to that question. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the only thing they did was issue a statement, not about that one, but about, you may have seen it last year with uh, John Major was furious because the then Prince Charles is supposed to have seen John Major in the 90s. 
uh, to talk about his mother's abdication. You know, she's been around too long. It's time she went. I think I want to be queen, uh, king. Will you back me up? You know, and John Major in the crown does that, goes to see the queen about it. And later on, he's supposed to have said the same to Tony Blair. And both former prime ministers said last autumn, you know, this is absolute rubbish. It never happened. And this was broadcast nine weeks, nine weeks after the death of the late queen, yeah. his mum. So. Hugely insensitive. But I was going to say on the flip side, John Major did get to be portrayed by Johnny Lee Miller. So, you know, swings and roundabouts. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't complain about that, did he? He didn't. No, no, he didn't. Well, actually, I think the best prime minister is Harold Wilson by Jason Watkins. Great yeah. performance. He's a fantastic he's got a very actor. funny voice, Harold Wilson. I remember in the 70s, everybody like Mike Yarwood took him off impersonated him. He had a very distinctive voice and he, he really nails that. But I think that's it. Some of the acting is fine, but uh, the portrayals. I think Diana with Elizabeth Debicki, the Bicky, is it? I think she's fabulous. Uh, but the Queen, I mean, Olivia Coleman, great actress, Imelda Staunton, terrific actress, but they just make her look like the president of the local WI, somebody worthy, but not get her character. I think Claire Foy does, actually, of the three of them. Do you think that's also because of the distance from that time as well, we're more willing to suspend our disbelief because we're harking back to the sort of 40s and 50s with Claire Foy. May have been the writing. I think Claire Foy, there's a, there's a wonderful bit where she gets out of the car, somebody greets her or something, or somebody shuts the car door, and she just said, think it like that, very quick. And that was the Queen. She was very sort of abrupt, almost. Deadpan sense of humour, which never comes across in the, any of the actresses. But uh, there's a story of the Queen, the real Queen, talking to... Uh, who's the director of the film The Queen with Helen Mirren and the real Queen says, you know, did, did we let you film at Buckingham Palace? And they said, no, we tried, but they wouldn't let you. And the Queen just said, hmm, sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> that was The Queen. It was a kind of short, abrupt, sort of deadpan sense of humour. You know, I think the problem is Diana, the Queen, they were the two most famous women in the world at the time. Diana in the office in the 90s, the Queen for the rest of the time. They were multi-layered, like all of us, you know, they were strengths, weaknesses. Really, when everybody else was photographing Diana, and I was photographing the Queen and the Queen Mother and Margaret and that generation, because nobody else was bothering with them. And Princess Margaret had a very serious side to her. She was very devoted to the Queen. So this idea that she was constantly messing everything up uh, is just rubbish, you know. There's a bit where she tries to party at the White House. Have you seen that one with President yeah. Johnson? And she ends up coming out with these disgusting limericks about there was a young lady from Dallas. Well, I won't go into that one. But, um, <laughs> that was a very naughty one about it. She ends up singing, and on a, standing on a chair singing something, I can't remember. And, and then she grabs somebody's cigar and starts smoking that. I mean, she just wouldn't do anything like that. She was too conscious of her dignity. But having said that, she was naughty at times. You know, liked a good time. I want to go back to something you said earlier about how you think the portrayals might be damaging to the royal family one day. Can you elaborate on that a little? Well, I think what bothers me is the fact that, I mean, I've got friends who are, you know, educated to sort of degree level and things, and they'll say, oh, I never realised the Queen did this or did that. And I said, well, she didn't. You know, mm. you should know better. You know, it worries me that in two or three hundred years' time and beyond, uh, when people sit down at whatever is replaced Google and they, you know, sort of put in their <sighs> computer, you know, uh, late 20th century royalty or something and, and that this will be one of the things that comes up and people will believe it i mean there's still loads of rubbish out there anyway regardless of the crown people grasp one thing and believe it i suppose and that's what's what's hugely damaging but the trouble is with it if, if it was actually to completely fact 
completely true and the palace verified everything, it would be so dull because <laughs> royal family, I mean, I wish I had a pound for every time I read in the paper that royal family are having summits. They always have these summits. It's rubbish, you know, really what be the queen walking the corgis and she said to Charles, what, what do you think we should do about this? That, that would be the summit. In other words, the queen didn't like drama. The late queen didn't like drama and there weren't all these meetings and rows with prime ministers and so on. The Queen kept her own counsel and so on. She got plenty of drama in the last five years. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I think the drama happened around her. I don't think... It involved her directly, yeah. When I used to see the Queen doing walkabouts and so on, if something really interesting happened, it was because of the other person, like the little girl that refuses to give the flowers and snatches them back or something. That's the funny moment. But the Queen, she was like clockwork. She didn't do anything that was sensational and so on. And the other thing that makes me laugh, really, is the fact that they always arrive like, to see each other privately in these great limousines because it's beautiful and dramatic and so on. But in real life, of course, the royal family, I mean, they don't you know, have really terrible cars. The late queen particularly was just very low-key about everything. With that in mind, do you think it would be better if the crown just hadn't been made? Because I suppose on the flip side, it's really reignited a lot of interest in the royal family and a lot of people really love them from watching the show. But like you said, if it was made completely accurately, it'd probably be quite boring. So do you think it should have been made at all? No, because I think it was Emily was saying, I mean, there, it does generate interest in the monarchy. It should definitely be made, but with, oh, quite warnings, but this is a fictionalised account, but actually encouraging people to then go and find the truth that for themselves or to try and say this is a general introduction to the monarchy of the period, you know, and for further details, go to such a thing. They do it even in soaps these days. If you've been affected by this, please contact sure. have a look at the website or something. I think something like that would be great. A bit like I think I feel about this with knocking down statues of controversial people in Oxford, where I live, this one of Cecil Rhodes that people have been trying to get rid of for, for ages. My feeling is to keep it, but have a real banner warning saying this reflected the yeah, the feelings of the time. We don't agree with it now. Please find out more for yourself, that kind of thing. I feel like there's a, a bit of a missed opportunity from Netflix there to have not done a documentary that's like the crown fact versus fiction to sort of run alongside it. Do you know what I mean? I think you should be pitching it, Ian. Why I do love the crown is that every November I look forward to it because I get work out of it. You know, <laughs> write these pieces. Newspapers will ring me up and say, what do you think about this? And Usually you just see the first episode, don't you? So you can only comment on that. But uh, I mean, there are books written about it. Robert Lacey is the historical advisor to The Crown and he does The Crown as a, a sort of supporting book. But people have written books and obviously thousands of newspaper articles are just slamming the, uh, <laughs> the, the historical inaccuracies, you know. Back to your point, though, about it having a real potential impact on members of the royal family. Maybe that's the disclaimer they... Need if you or members of your family have been affected by this episode. <laughs> it's like, I have, I'm the princess. Yeah. Yeah. This autumn, of course, we've got the death of Diana in it, haven't we? So, I mean, that's going to bring all that up. And as I said, I'm a, I'm a fan affected me that episode tremendously. So goodness knows what they're going to do with the filming of that. I mean, that's a bit mean, really. They should sort of, at the end of the episode, see Diana and Dodie getting in a car and sort of, you know, saying goodbye to the people at the Ritz or something and then fading out because we know what happens, you know. I will be surprised if they depict it. There have been reports this week saying that they are going to cover it, in inverted commas, sensitively. Right. That's going to be incredibly painful for so many people to watch, not just uh, family members. And I think they will face a huge backlash, don't you, Ian, if, if they don't get it right? Yeah, definitely. What do you think, Ian, about 
the closer we get to present day on the crown. Because I think my personal view is that it was all like watching historical period drama up until they introduced sort of Diana. And now it feels like we're coming into present day and it maybe feels a little more uncomfortable. Well, yeah, because, I mean, we're still, you know, living out that effect. I mean, the royal family is a very, or the monarchy is a very slow-moving institution, isn't it? It's not like a, a prime minister, which every every five years it changes completely, or, or an institution like that. It is a continual, slow, evolving family. And so we're living through things that started 20, 30, 40 years ago. And the nearer we get to the modern day, then the more problematic it is for them. But also it is, I think, for the producers and everything, because we now know it. I mean, certainly the early stuff, nobody really knew at all because it's just the Queen came to the throne five and a half years after the end of World War Two, So it was a long while ago. And that was fascinating, wasn't it? The early stuff, I think, just to see how it progressed. Although, again, there's loads of rubbish in it. I mean, they see the Queen hating, no, well, not hating, but dis having a terrible relationship with Winston Churchill, her first prime minister. But in actual fact, they had a very good relationship and she once was asked a long, long while ago, uh, who her favourite prime minister was. And she said, oh, Winston, because it was such fun. He venerated the monarchy, but he treated her like a granddaughter. And, you know, they had that granddaughter-grandfather relationship. But uh, that didn't come across in the film. And even the very first episode, I always remember being horrified because they showed the king, her father, who had lung cancer. I mean, he was sort of coughing up blood and things. And thinking the queen probably wouldn't have watched it, but her friends and relations would, and they would have told her. I mean, Prince Harry said, did you see that interview? And they said, was it last year when he was promoting his book? They said, you watch The Crown? He said, oh, yes, but one eye on Google. He He has to sort of fact check it like the rest of us. Now, talking about Harry, in the past, he's actually said he prefers the fictional portrayal to real life press attention. What do you think about his comments? That would be the interesting thing is how much they do watch it. I mean, the late Queen would never admit to watching anything. I mean, we don't know whether she watched The Queen with the Helen Mirren film or uh, The King's Speech. I know her cousins did, so they would have told her. And the courtiers probably would have told her as well. But whether she does, I'm sure she had a sneaky peek at those, definitely. It's fascinating to know if they watch, if, you know, they all gather around on a, whatever it is, <laughs> a binge night. To, uh, <laughs> we to, take to away. Netflix. That just reminded me, the now Queen formerly known as the Duchess of Cornwall, I think handled it very well when her character was introduced in The Crown by inviting Emerald Emerald Fennell into Clarence House for a reception. And I spoke to Emerald at that and I said, you know, how are you feeling about being here? And she said, I'm obviously not going to be cast into the tower anytime soon. But I think she, I thought that was a very smart move. It just showed that Camilla was just completely relaxed she, about she made a bit thing. of a joke about it didn't she about her counterpart her alter ego she did yeah she made a joke in her speech about it and I thought that was a, a very elegant way of dealing with that that's true I mean I think it'd be irresistible not to watch as well I mean no, even if you're royal and you have many many more important things to do I think someone depicting your life on screen and the country's talking about it I mean would you guys watch but like Ian you'd probably end up you know shouting at the TV a bit, <laughs> yeah so. yeah or hiding. I think sometimes we know too much. That's the problem. And you think, well, that definitely didn't happen. I mean, I can't even watch Inspector Morse because it's filmed in Oxford. And you always have this car zooming out of somewhere. And you think, well, that's a dead end. He couldn't get down there. You know, <laughs> you kind of, it spoils it. You know? yeah. Um, but yeah, I bet they have a, a real who. Actually, I'll tell you a story, not about this, but it's about the first big documentary or TV production was called Crown Matrimonial. And that was about the abdication. And that was a sensation in the time. I remember it. That was in the 70s. 
the only living person was the Queen Mother, I think, at the time. And uh, Princess Margaret told somebody that uh, the Queen Mother used to have everybody in stitches because she imitated the actress playing her. Because the <laughs> uh-huh. actress playing her was very sort of, oh, dear, you know, very sort of frothy and nervous and lightweight, whereas the Queen Mother really was as tough as, you know, old boot, but she was, she was a very strong character. But in this production, she was seen as a very sweet and innocent little thing. So she used to keep all the royal family entertained, you know, sort of, uh, oh, dear. They certainly watched it in those days anyway. That's fabulous. Um, but actually, the production, I mean, I remember the 70s stuff. There was these things like I, Claudius, well, that was early 80s, I think. The setting was terrible. It's like just a bit of cardboard, wasn't it? You know, sort of <laughs> one corner of a room, a pillar would be ancient Rome. And, you know, that's the great thing about The Crown, you know, the lavish production. Yeah, mm. incredible. You mentioned about watching films and it being spoiled for you. Which royal-related film have you really enjoyed and why? Well, definitely The Queen, the Helen Mirren film. And that's a very interesting story, isn't it? What I read was that the guy behind it was not a monarchist and his aim was to make Tony Blair almost the hero of the hour, which some people think he was after Diana died, and the late Queen as cold and unsympathetic. That was the thing. But because Helen Mirren gave such a multifaceted performance, she was quite authentic as the Queen, it backfired. So it actually, we were sympathetic to the Queen in the end. I really enjoyed that. And also there was bits in it that were very funny. You remember the bit where the Land Rover breaks down in the little stream at Balmoral and she rings up the house and says, you know, it's it's the front axle or something, um, because she, in the war she was with the ATS and she, she stripped down Land Rovers. So that was a kind of funny little illusion. She was very witty and all the thing about Mrs Blair trying not to curtsy, but half curtsying was, you know, and the Queen like looking at her. I thought it was really kind of witty and that was quite lavish in its way and... Uh, because I think also a lot of people, I don't know whether it has the effect with the crown, but certainly I remember a lot of people in America were apparently buying the Queen's sort of country look, the barber jacket, uh-huh. and the, <laughs> the tough shoes. And I don't know whether they bother with a the headscarf these days, but it'd be interesting to know if the, if the crown has that effect with the people go out and buy their old Rolls Royce. That movie did capture her, yeah. I think so, yeah. It's interesting, your point there about Peter Morgan, though. Again, that is something that has been well documented. He wasn't any kind of monarchist. And so you have to also take that into account when you're thinking about the crown because he's the brains behind it. Yeah, and I guess he's not, can't think of a better phrase than sucking up to them, really, as he's trying to make it as objective and ready for drama as possible. Although I did think season five was very generous towards Charles, actually. Like, there was a whole episode based on the Prince's Trust and I didn't know whether that was maybe a little bit of a bone thrown to people that have... um, had issues with it in the past or whether that was just just always the plan always the plan yeah did you watch the latest season Ian uh, yeah, I, I think it, I think I like the earlier stuff because it is so far removed. Things like the fashion and so on from the 50s and that they bring to life, don't they? It is like you say, it's that period drama element to it, which makes you go along with it all more. It's a bit like watching a very beautifully shot Agatha Christie adaptation absolutely, absolutely. Uh, with fewer murders with fewer murders <laughs> well obviously Peter Morgan has said before that he has a 20 year rule so he draws the line 20 years before present day because obviously it's more current affairs and less history but more recently especially in the last five years or so there's been a lot of genuine drama that could be depicted do you think we're due an adaptation on Harry and Meghan Ian or do you think that needs to wait for a while 
Probably wait a while. I mean, there, there's no reason it, it couldn't come back. Well, there's always interest in the royal family, isn't there? So I think there's definitely mileage in it for the future. I mean, that really is drama, isn't it? The whole of the Andrew and um, yeah. uh, Prince Harry and Meghan leaving the royal family. I mean, it's well, actually, I suppose that reality is drama, isn't it? I mean, I don't know. I don't know whether a drama could add much to it. Really, you couldn't make so it up, really. Knocking about at the moment. Well, speaking of, I mean, I know it's a bit hit and miss with you, but are you excited for the last season of The Crown? Well, yeah, for all the reasons I said that, I'll get work. (laughs) um, Yeah, I think we'll kind of miss it. I'll miss this sort of thing, talking about it. I mean, it's fascinating. And uh, perhaps they could end with a kind of, like you say, a Netflix documentary about what we've learned from The Crown and where we go forward with it. I think that's a very good idea. Perhaps, you know, with the actors. And some good presenters right here. Plus a member of the royal family. Thank you so much for your time, Ian. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Oh, great. Thank you. We shall speak after November, I think. Oh, when it's finished. Yeah, Yeah. we should come back and do it. Yeah, that's a good chance. And you can tell us your five worst moments of the series. It feels it's all about to erupt. She opens her mouth and hand grenades come out. She wants to tear down the temple. Let's go for it. What the hell is she doing? I won't go quietly. I'll battle till the end. Well, it's safe to say that Ian has divided opinions on The Crown. but it's really divided. Some reservations. <laughs> some reservations, but really interesting hearing about it from a historian and an expert just the frustrations of knowing it's different from what you're seeing on screen yeah absolutely I think he certainly raised a few things that I hadn't clocked the first time around but we are about to be joined by another royal historian who is maybe a little more forgiving of on-screen adaptations please welcome to the podcast Tracy Borman welcome Tracy shall we open about asking a little bit about what you do so as a royal historian can you tell us and our listeners a little bit about what that means Sure. So, uh, yeah, I'm a royal historian, which covers kind of a thousand years, really. So (laughs) it's quite a a large scope. I've written a book on the history of the monarchy, but I really specialise in the Tudor period. So Henry VIII, Elizabeth I, six wives, all of that skullduggery. So I'm a historian for most of the time. I write books, I present history shows on TV, and I also work at some very historic Royal Palaces, Hampton Court, the Tower of London. So yeah, basically anything to do with the royals and with history. And hopefully I'm all over it. We were talking earlier to Matthew Lopez, who is the director of Red, White and Royal Blue, which is a new sort of royal film. He's an American director and he was saying how utterly fascinated he is with the royal history over here. And particularly, like you say, like the Tudor times. And obviously this is a period that's been very, very adapted. What do you think is the ongoing fascination with audiences and the royals over the years? That's the thing, especially the Tudors. We can't get enough of them. We keep coming (laughs) back for more. And I think really when it comes to that particular period, it's an ongoing soap opera. I mean, a king who marries six times, beheads two of his wives, his daughter, the so-called virgin queen. It's a very self-confident age. And so I think that's really why we love the Tudors. It's so dramatic, you really couldn't make it up. But royal history in general, I think it was Virginia Woolf who said that royalty gives us a paradise to inhabit. You know, 
researching, reading about royals, sort of almost from another planet, aren't they? They're so glamorous and it all looks very wonderful being a prince or princess. Of course, we know it's far from being quite so ideal, but there is a sense that they're not quite human beings like the rest of us. And I think that holds such a fascination. And it certainly does for me, whether it's a royal in 1066 or in 2023. It is deliberate, isn't it, as well? They have the pomp and the circumstance to, I guess, elevate themselves. To set them apart, to set them absolutely. Apart. Yeah, yeah, because it needs to be sufficiently different to everyone else's lives, I suppose, as you say, to set them apart. That's right. And I think that's emphasised in all of the pomp and pageantry, as you say, in particularly ceremonies like the coronation, where there's a very kind of divine message. You know, this is... God's anointed on earth and and it's all very mystical. And, and that's really the purpose of ceremonies like that, to set the monarch apart from us mere mortals. <laughs> and I think therein lies the fascination for the rest of us. We all love to know what really goes on behind closed doors in the palaces. I mean, we're talking about royals on screen and obviously there has been over history countless adaptations. I mean, you've got the Tudors, Elizabeth, the White Queen, the favourite, obviously that's a bit of a different time period than the rest of them. I was really curious when you watch these movies and TV shows, how much artistic licence do people take and what in your opinion is one that really, really gets the time period right. I have to say, this issue divides the historical community. Um, <laughs> right. and there are the purists who say, no, it all has to be totally rigorous and accurate. And then there are those, and you can probably tell already which camp I'm in, who say, no, you know, all history is good. It's open to interpretation and a bit of dramatic license, you know, doesn't hurt anyone. And I'm definitely in that camp, provided that people watching, you know, take it with a pinch of salt. They realise this isn't necessarily a historical documentary. It is drama. But I would say those dramas that have really hit the nail on the head probably include, I think it was a 1970s BBC adaptation, Elizabeth R, uh, with the late, great uh, Glenda Jackson playing Elizabeth I. Now, oh. that is famed for its accuracy. And the costumes were spot on. They used a lot of Elizabeth's actual speeches as the script. So they didn't deviate from it. But I have to say, and this is probably treason, um, but <laughs> although it was very accurate, it's a bit dull at times. You know, it's lacking in a bit of, a bit of drama. Um, and I think the dramas that work the best are those that managed to have a bit of contemporary relevance, really, to make it exciting to modern audiences. So personally, I'm a big fan, talking of Elizabeth, of the first Elizabeth film with Kate Blanchett, which definitely did play fast and loose with some of the facts. But I think they got across the danger of the time that she was living in. And they certainly explored the whole Virgin Queen aspect. And of course, the costumes were totally wrong and some of the chronology was a bit out but I think they got that sense of drama across just brilliantly so just looking at, at Elizabeth I they're two very contrasting approaches but I do think 
we need a bit of drama to spice things up. It's not a documentary, really. I think the Tudors does that very well. The 2006 show, I mean, you've got a dollop of soap opera in that. <laughs> a big dollop of soap opera. <laughs> and I, I know it, it definitely has its critics, that series, but I loved it. I just think, you know, so what if they messed about with the names of Henry VIII's sisters and all sorts of weird and wonderful costumes appeared and Henry VIII never aged or put on weight? You know, it, it's... <laughs> Still, again, it was one of those that conveyed the drama and the fact it was a soap opera. And I think it would have appeared like that for people at the time. It's what's the king done now and who is he married to this week? And and it certainly it got across that kind of message. So I loved it personally, but the purists probably didn't love it quite so much. Not so much. I mean, there is a young Elizabeth in it whose hair is crimped. Like yeah. 80, it's like, how did they do that back in the day? <laughs> that, so this is always yeah. my biggest question when you watch these things. I always think to myself, yeah, but how do they brush their teeth? Or did they really look like that? She clearly hasn't had a bath for two years or whatever. And how could she look so fresh? I find that fascinating. But then it's a balance, isn't it, between wanting the audience to stay engaged, not be completely disgusted. Turned off. No watching. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Especially when you think, you know, Elizabeth I, she brushed her teeth with sugar. So that was very effective. Oh, wow. because, uh, yeah, It was considered to have abrasive properties, so they thought it was good at scrubbing off all the dirt, which it probably was, but of course it left behind tooth decay. And, and if dramas showed Elizabeth as she really was, she had barely any teeth. As you say, she wouldn't have smelt too nice. This thick makeup that she wore, this white lead makeup that actually corroded her skin. So she would have been very different from those glorious portraits that we see of her where she never ages and she always looks amazing. But yeah, if you show that on screen, I'm not no. sure how well that... It's more horrible histories, isn't it? Than, yeah, oh, yeah. A nice film. You know who I do think they sort of did with her was Margot Robbie in... Is it Mary, yes. Queen of Scots? Though? But they really made her makeup as Elizabeth, probably the most realistic as what you're saying, Tracy. That's right. I think they did. Although I have to admit to not having watched it because I can't bear Mary Queen of Scots. So I'm not <laughs> going to watch it. So I can't comment on that particular film, but I have seen images from it. And it does look like they added a touch of realism there to the makeup. When you were saying, you know, brushing the teeth with sugar, can I just ask what's the most disgusting or just surprising fact that you've ever found out about a royal? Oh, yeah, that TV a shows and movies royal. like completely gloss over. Yes. Yeah. Oh, oh, well, it has to be. Well, if we can really go there. Uh, yes. Yes. If this may get edited out, but hey, um, it would have to be Henry VIII's bowel habits because <laughs> that man, we know a lot about his visits to the toilet because he was attended by a groom of the stool whose job it was to just go with the king to the toilet and kind of stand with him while he did his business and then make sure he was cleaned up afterwards. And that groom of the stool, he would actually write down the king's kind of movements. And so we know all about his bowel habits and his constipation. And this is a man who didn't eat many vegetables. He had a lot of, he had a lot of red meat and red wine. So I'm afraid it took an inevitable kind of toll on his dietary health, should we say. So it very much was a case of horrible histories when it came to Henry VIII. Am I right in thinking, though, that that would have actually been quite a coveted job? Because... On the face of it, it sounds like something you'd run a mile from, but wasn't that something that people fought over? 
the most sought after job in the whole <laughs> Tudor court. Really? You're absolutely right, because it's all about having access to the king and nobody has closer I was going to say more regular access <laughs> than, than the groom on the stool. Sorry to lower the tone, but, but really, they're there and they have a captive audience. You know, the king particularly because he spent a long time on the toilet. And so the groom on the stool could use that time to ask him for all sorts of favours, um, for titles and lands for himself and his mates. And so that's why everybody wanted to be groom of the stool. So it wasn't quite such a disgusting job as it sounded. Well, it probably was disgusting, but let's just say that the perks were worth it. That not mean, one I'm going to apply for any time no, soon. Yeah, but you know a lot what? about that. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> thinking... your mind, doesn't it? blow my mind. Because <laughs> it actually seems like an easy job if the person only goes to the toilet like once every morning. You're thinking about it way too much But now, already. clearly, not for that man. That was a difficult job. <laughs> if, you know, he had so many... Owl movement. So, yeah, I'm just a bit traumatised right now. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking, like, we should pitch some sort of movie where the main character is the attendant. Trying to climb up the greasy pole, I can see it. Directed by James Cameron. <laughs> oh, it could be on something now. It would have a very... Um, niche viewer yeah. kind of profile, I think. That, yeah, I can't imagine sort of going to the cinema, buying popcorn and watching that. I just, that, I that is a corner of history that hasn't been explored. Oh, so well, there you go. Not on film anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and you said before how you didn't like the Queen of Scots. Are there other royals that you just didn't like and you just did not want to? No, what are you doing playing favourites there, Tracy? <laughs> I know, sorry, sorry. I shouldn't be playing favourites at all because as a historian, of course, I'm strictly impartial. But because I have written about and lived with, if you like, Elizabeth I for so many years, of course, I'm not going to take kindly to her. Her chief rival, Mary, who I think was just a bit silly. But there is another royal who I cannot stand <laughs> and in a sort of strictly impartial way. And that is Edward VIII, the one who abdicated. Oh. And oh. it's often the romance of that whole story, you know, the king who gave up the throne for love and all the rest of it. We tend to hear a lot of that and it has been romanticised. But goodness me, did we have a lucky escape when he gave up the throne. He would have been terrible as king. And he was already making a real mess of the monarchy and plunging it into crisis because he was just so ill-suited. He was lazy mm. and vain and shockingly cruel, actually. That really was brought home to me when I read his correspondence. And so he had this younger brother called John, who died when he was just 13. And of course, his mother, uh, Queen Mary, was distraught at the loss of her youngest son. But just a week later, Edward wrote to Mary telling her to get over it and said that John's death had been nothing more than a regrettable nuisance. And oh. I just think he was, that's the kind of measure of the man for me. That's horrendous, wow. yeah. He's been portrayed nicely, though, because I, I, there's a story about a butler that he used to have, he and his wife. Oh, in The oh. Crown? They took him in and but how then, wonderful he was and but, how he got ill and he cared for him. The Crown also, yeah. you know, that I don't think it's all positive because there's also a lot about his links with mm, the Nazi oh, party. Oh, yes, yes. I mean, yeah, this does lead us on to the Crown's early series quite silkily, doesn't it? So, um, <laughs> I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Because obviously that takes some artistic licence. But yeah, but in terms of things like the former king who abdicated, do you think some yeah. of it is, especially when it leans more into solid history, do you know what I mean? It's like, how, yeah. how accurate would you say it is? 
Yeah, it has had its critics, hasn't it? But I'm mm. a, a huge fan of The Crown and particularly the early series. I thought they were just mesmerising. And I think they, they got most of the history absolutely spot on. And I think certainly, yeah, bringing forward that not particularly positive story about Edward VIII and all of the damage that did to the royal family after he abdicated as well. It was mm. a sort of ongoing drama, really. I think Claire Foy played the young Elizabeth absolutely brilliantly. And I think what those early episodes of The Crown got absolutely right were the sort of period details, really evoking a sense of the 1950s and the 1960s, and also brilliantly interweaving what was going on in the rest of the country, the rest of the world, and then obviously focusing in on the royal family. So we hear a lot about the inaccuracies, but I think we ought to applaud all of the things they got right. And a lot of that comes down to that, as I say, the the sort of period detail and the costumes, I think, are just sublime. They're absolutely spot on, so beautifully researched. Uh, So, as I say, yeah, I'm a big fan of The Crown. I think one of my favourite scenes from The Crown is when Claire Foy finds out about her uncle's misdeeds during the war and sort of boots him out of, she's considering allowing him back. And then, yeah, yeah, I think that's just so amazingly acted by Claire. I agree. She's just... Just brilliant and gets the sense across of somebody who has to have a kind of stiff upper lip and uh, this isn't somebody able to express herself very openly, but conveys feelings so well. Nevertheless, you really end up empathising with what was an incredibly difficult position that this 25-year-old woman had to take on upon the death of her father, uh, George VI, in 1952. Absolutely. There's actually another recent adaptation about a royal family member that I was curious about your thoughts on. And that's the Bridgerton spin-off Queen Charlotte. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but they do a depiction of King George III and his mental health issues. So, I mean, how accurate would you say with that? Because they make no secret that it's fiction, but then it is rooted in this real history that I personally never knew about, that we have this king who... I mean, they they think it was either mercury poisoning or he was bipolar or... There's a much better understanding of him. And HRP actually had a fantastic exhibition about him a couple of years ago because he was known as the Mad King. But actually looking at it through a modern lens, you can have so much more sympathy for him, can't you? You really can. And I can't claim to have watched that series, but I can talk about George III, his so-called madness, as it was seen at the time which actually the research that we've done recently, and we talked about this in in that exhibition that you mentioned at Kew Palace, suggests more that George was suffering from bipolar, or he was bipolar rather, that was seen as, you know, madness, and it was seen as potential poisoning, mercury poisoning, and all this sort of raft of explanations at the time. But it does seem to us today, actually, when you look at his behaviour and the extremes of that behaviour, because he did have long periods of stability, but then these very kind of dramatic episodes where he was just incapable of functioning, let alone ruling. And this being an age where the king was still nominally in charge. So it plunged the country into crisis when he he was having these episodes and he would talk non-stop. There was, I think, one particular bout of of insanity, as it was known. He talked non-stop for 56 hours. And of course, 
it was very destabilizing for the country. I feel like I could do that though. Uh, I think you could. Actually. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Filibustering. <laughs> I, I didn't want to be the one to say that. But, uh, I'm glad we all have the same opinion. Of me. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I went to a show, by the way. This is a complete tangent by Giles Brandreth at the Edinburgh Festival, and um, it was called "Can't Stop Talking," and he held the record for talking for the longest. I think it was. Was it 26 hours wow. he talked for? That's interesting. And, you know, it's fascinating as well that it's so documented because I thought, you know, especially in those times that they would want to sort of hide any evidence of that the monarch had any sort of issues. Yes, exactly. It was very well documented and so was the brutal treatments that the poor king had to undergo. You know, he was put in a straitjacket and because they didn't really understand what was wrong with him. They Neither did they understand how to treat him. And uh, really, it was heartbreakingly brutal, the, the treatments, the beatings he got. And really, it was only uh, sort of in, in later years that people looked back and reflected that actually, it might not have been at all just the madness, the whatever it was, the poisoning that they thought it had been, and that this could have been much more sympathetically treated. And of course, the reason it plunged the country into crisis was not just the king's illness, but the fact that his eldest son took over in the regency and the future George IV was not the stuff of which great monarchs were made. Ah. And he was a very famous party boy, millions of pounds in debt, as he himself said, addicted to wine and women. So (laughs) that didn't do the monarchy too many favours either, really. Can I ask in your research, have you found that there are certain things that are hidden? Because obviously it is surprising that they haven't hid those health problems. But have you found in your research that there were like missing puzzle pieces? Oh, constantly, uh, throughout the ages. And I think what really, for me, is the, the thing that we haven't given enough attention to is the sort of the domestic side of monarchy, the private side, if you like, because so often historians overlook that and they focus in on the big political events and government records. But when I was researching, for example, the private life of the Tudors, I was astonished by how many of those records had just been overlooked. They're there because if you serve at court, you have to leave a record behind of your daily activities. And I think generations of historians just neglected those of being irrelevant. But you find out so much about the character of a monarch by looking at just their daily domestic life as recorded by their private servants. And so, as I said, you know, finding out things you might not want to know about Henry VIII's bowel movements or, <laughs> yeah, yeah. or about his hypochondria, actually. You find out just how afraid Henry VIII was. We see the the public tyrant, but in private, Henry VIII was described as being the most timid man you could meet. And so that's wow. a very different side. Often the private side of monarchy is so different to the public face that we see. And, and I think we ought to be lifting the lid on that a lot more because personally, I I think it gives us a lot more empathy or sympathy even for certain monarchs who've gone down in history with a a rather dubious reputation. It, It gives you a new understanding of them when you look at what perhaps they're suffering in private. Do you think future historians, I'm talking 50, 100 years from now, will know more about our monarchy than what 
our current monarchy than what we currently know. I'm sure it might be I'm jealous. 100 years plus. <laughs> it might be 100 years plus rather than 50, but it that's the really interesting thing. So when I was writing my history of the monarchy, so it was literally 1066 to the present day. Actually, the hardest monarch to find out about was Elizabeth II. And, wow. and that was when so I was writing it while she was still alive. And you would think in this day of an age of mass communication that it would be the by far the easiest. But no, finding reliable sources yeah. was the challenge. Plenty of newspaper reports and all the rest of it. But Elizabeth II didn't really go on record very often with her own personal opinion. She was very impartial and she stuck to her constitutional brief. Whereas you look back 400 years ago to her namesake, Elizabeth I, we have no end of her speeches and personal opinions on record. So I think it does actually get harder in a way, particularly when the monarchy becomes constitutional and they're not able to just say what they think in the same way as they did in centuries past. But I think we will get to know more as new records are released by you know, the National Archives. And a lot of those are just too sensitive, I think, to be out in the yeah. public domain uh, anytime soon. I used to work at the National Archives and the usual release date is sort of 30 years after the death of the person. But then particularly sensitive documents have 100 years stamped Damn on it. them. And, and then <laughs> intriguingly, I saw some stamps on documents that said never to be opened. Oh. So you just think, oh, I wish I could have looked oh. inside those. Oh. <laughs> I wonder who that they're about. So, so teasing, isn't it? That's My so goodness. Juicy. I know. I mean, yeah. I sort of had this about Queen Elizabeth's will. Like, you know, it's, it's going to be sealed for, what, 90 years, is it? I mean, we're never going to know, but we'll probably learn that about more print. about her. Yeah. I also yeah. did hear that her favourite butler, Paul... Wybrew, her page. Yeah, her page was going through her diary. I mean, this was reports, going through her diary and kind of picking which pages were good, which pages were too personal. <gasps> I can't wait. Oh, my Yeah, God. I know. Which sounds too. like we might not be around. I know. <laughs> oh, no, I need a potion. I need a potion to survive like a hundred more years. Oh, my God. <laughs> just, just for this nugget just of information. This. Uh, this is how much you yeah. love the gossip. Yeah. <laughs> That's how much. I was wondering if there was any particular historical figures who haven't had their adaptation yet who you think would be perfect for a TV show or a movie. Oh, that's a great question. Well, I'm going to put in a pitch now for somebody who's not at all glamorous, but I think is really fascinating. And that is uh, James II. Okay? okay. So he was the brother of the merry monarch, Charles II, who's had you know many a TV adaptation because obviously he's a bit of a wild child, many, many mistresses and illegitimate children and very glamorous court. But his brother could have actually given him a bit of a run for his money in that respect. And he tends to be overlooked because he didn't last very long as king. He proved quite unpopular. People thought that he was very intolerant and that he was going to make everybody be Catholic again. And eventually Parliament got rid of him. So he was ousted. But then he kind of lived the rest of his life in exile, always trying to win back his crown. And it's the whole era of the Jacobite rebellions where the Jacobites are trying to get James his crown back as well. It's a period of high drama. Now, we have seen 
a little bit of that with the long running series Outlander, which is starts with the Jacobite rebellions and, and all the rest of it. But James II himself, I think, was such a fascinating character. He hasn't been covered very well in books either. And I do think it's quite surprising, having researched him, I think he's much misunderstood. But it's a very, very dramatic time in our history. You know, a king who loses his throne and lives in exile and tries desperately to win back his throne. There's lots of drama in there anyway. So I would I'd put in a pitch for a bit of a bit of 1680s drama to be seen on our screens. I would support that pitch. I think we've come up with some good <laughs> some good ideas today. Um him and the uh, toilet attendant of, uh, when, when should we sit down for the script? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. They, we're in the wrong jobs here. We're Clearly. In the <laughs> Tracy, thank you so so much. It's so it's lovely. It's been fascinating. Yeah. We could talk to you for it's the rest of the day. I actually have lots of questions but I'll leave them for next time. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Can I just say, I actually failed history at school and I found this interview really, really interesting. If Tracy taught you history, you'd I know. Be... I, I kept thinking that. If she taught me, I would have got a 10. I absolutely loved that. I thought that was fantastic and she was so fascinating to chat to. And yeah. She enjoyed it so much. Oh, she definitely did. And who knew about Henry VIII? I, I really think we're on to something there with that movie adaptation. Uh, you mark my no, words. No, I think we've, we've heard enough. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to get her back, though. There are so many more things I'd like to ask her. Absolutely. Same. We will be seeing her again on this podcast very soon, I'm sure. So that is the end of the podcast. Thank you, as always, for joining us. I hope you enjoyed learning about royals on stage and screen as much as we did. In the meantime, catch more from Hello with our news and entertainment show, The Daily Lowdown, available on Spotify, Apple and wherever you get your podcasts. Au revoir. Bye. Bye.